We have been taking a journey through the Bible. This is week 10. And believe it or not, we are two-thirds of the way through the greatest story ever told. The story of the Bible. Um, we got two weeks left in the Old Testament, and then four weeks in the New Testament, and we'll wrap this whole thing up uh, and go on to something else. Um, what we're looking at, as I've said repeatedly, is we are seeing how the whole Bible fits together from Genesis to Revelation, how Jesus is the center of every part of the Bible, and uh, how we as people can respond to Jesus with greater knowledge and love and obedience as a result. That's our objective. And every time that we gather as we study God's Word, as we worship, as we sing, as we, um, as we pray, as we fellowship one with another, as we participate in the ordinances like communion and baptism and so forth, uh, what we're here to do is to know, love, and obey Jesus and to learn how to do that and to practice doing that uh, as we gather together. So today is, about, is called Exile, and it is about how the people of Israel um, were disobedient to God and uh, how their disobedience led to God's judgment and to their exile from the promised land. They lost the promised land and with it the city of Jerusalem and its temple was all destroyed and all lost. Um, so um, we're going to look at how that happened, but to fully explain that, let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, a man sought out a woman that he loved. He pursued her and wooed her, and she married him. And both of them pledged their undying love and faithfulness to one another. And he took her home with him to be his wife, and he lavished blessings on her. And they were happy. Or why? But soon after the honeymoon ended, she began to wander away from him. She took many lovers, so many that her husband, out of the deep pain of his deeply wounded heart, gave her second-born child a name that means not loved and no mercy. Because his wife no longer loved him, and so he would no longer extend mercy and forgiveness to her. And then a little while later, she had a third child that he named not mine. Because her adulteries had grown so persistent, and her love for him so cold, that he could no longer be certain that any children that his wife had were his. And after this, he let her go her way and pursue her lovers to whatever extent she wanted until one of them took her away and sold her as a slave and a prostitute. You know this story? This is a true story. This really happened to a Hebrew prophet named Hosea and to his wife Gomer. God told Hosea, go and marry Gomer. He picked her out specifically 
knowing all the pain that this would cause Hosea's heart so that his prophet would be a living illustration of God's relationship with his wandering wife, Israel. Hosea was a warning to all Israel what would happen because of her physical and spiritual adulteries that were committed in the worship of foreign fertility gods and goddesses that she had chosen to worship instead of God himself. God would take away all of his protection that he had offered as her husband and let her go her way. And those foreign nations whose gods that she loved would take her captive and sell her as a slave. He would, in other words, act just exactly how Hosea eventually did with Gomer. Now, you need to know that isn't the end of the story. But it is a significant, painful, and hard part of it that really did happen, both to Hosea and Gomer and between God and Israel. And to show it to you, I want to read you a couple of, uh, I want to read you a passage from, uh, from the book of Second Kings. Uh, Second Kings is one of those books that most people do not read. Um, or if they do read and they read through their Bible in a year and they make it through Leviticus, uh, their Bible reading plan dies in Second Kings. Um, but in any case, um, Second Kings is a book of history that tells you what happened to the nation of Israel as they had all of these kings. Uh, Josh talked last week about uh, how the how the kingdom was divided. Israel was twelve tribes descended from the the man Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, and and Jacob had twelve sons, and they became twelve tribes. 12 uh, clans within this one nation. Well, after, uh, after King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, came on the throne, he was kind of stupid, uh, thought he knew everything, and, uh, and 10 of the tribes split off from him and formed their own nation called Israel. And then he was left with just two tribes uh, down, in, uh, down in the southern kingdom that was called Judah. And here's what happened. The nation of Israel became wicked. And when they became wicked, God let them go for a while. He sent them all kinds of prophets, but they did not repent. And so this is what happened. And if you'd stand here as I read, this is from 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 6 through 18. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. That's the northern kingdom capital. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right 
they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according, in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are not different from the people of Israel, that our hearts are also prone to wander off after idolatrous things and to give ourselves over to that which is not God. And Father, I pray that you would help us to see the sin that they committed and for which they were judged, that we might not only turn away from it, but that we might walk in new life as people whom you loved, people for whom your Son was given. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, um, so again, let me remind you and uh, or clarify a few things for you. After King Solomon died, the nation of Israel split into two. Uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, new capital, city of Samaria. That kingdom included these tribes, Ephraim, Manasseh, Reuben, Gad, Dan, Naphtali, Asher, Issachar, and Zebulun. Southern Kingdom had its capital at Jerusalem, it's called Judah. They were the most dominant tribe there. Uh, it also included within its borders members of the tiny tribes of Benjamin and Simeon, who became so integrated into Judah that they were counted among them. And it also included the majority of the priests and their attendants from the tribe of Levi. But after that division, things did not go well. Uh, that division occurs in roughly 940 uh, B.C. Solomon dies and the kingdom splits. Uh, the, and Israel lasts as an independent nation until about 722 B.C. 
at which time the Assyrian Empire comes in, takes them over, takes everybody captive, destroys the city of Samaria along with many of the other cities, and carts them off into exile. And it is because the people of Israel had become essentially indistinguishable from the Canaanite people that they had displaced. The Canaanites worshipped the storm god, Baal. He was believed to be the god of the rain. And, um, and they believed that engaging in these fertility rites with sacred prostitutes under every, high, uh, under every spreading tree and on every high hill would cause the rain to fall on the land. And uh, she was represented by the goddess Asherah. And they would set up these, they were called Asherim, Asherah poles, that were essentially uh, fertility symbols, without getting too detailed. Okay? And um, they set all this stuff up. They sometimes sacrificed their own children as offerings to Baal by burning them to death in the fire. They had become indistinguishable from the Canaanite tribes. They set up two golden calves, one at Dan, one at Bethel, and they called these things the worship of the Lord. Now those of you who may remember um, Exodus chapter 32, Israel is nearly wiped out as a nation because of their worship of what? A golden calf, right? Somebody read their Bible, saw that this happened, and they went, you know, this is a heck of an idea. We need to get us not one golden calf, but two. One at each end of the kingdom and bow down to it and, and say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, right? So they did that. And all kinds of prophets came to them. Guys like Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos. Some of these names in your Bible that you hear and don't know what they're about. These are some of the prophets that came to the northern tribes of Israel and called them to repent. And they didn't. And so finally, God allowed them to be taken captive to the very place where all of these gods that they had been worshiping were worshiped every single day. Essentially, God said, if you want foreign deities and to bow down to idols, I have got a special deal for you. I'm going to let your enemies come and take you to the place where they are. One of God's worst judgments is giving you what you really want. Amen? And that's what happened. Because there were more godly people in it for a while, Judah lasted a little bit longer before she too had finally given herself over completely to idolatry and to all of the immorality that that entailed. But it took a while. Judah withstood three invasions, two partial exiles, and consisted solely of the city of Jerusalem and its immediate environs when it was finally taken captive completely in 586 B.C. by the Babylonian Empire that overthrew the Assyrians. For the sake of time, I won't read the whole account to you. I've read a little summary there of it from 2 Kings. But you can read the whole story in 2 Kings chapter 25. 
And for our present purposes, let me just say that it's sufficient to say that the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, which was all that was left of Judah, was total. The walls of the city were torn down completely. The king's palace, all of the great houses of the nobles and wealthy people were burned to the ground, along with the temple of God was completely destroyed. All of the valuable things that were present anywhere in the city, including in the temple itself, all of the temple articles were taken as plunder to Babylon. Only a very small number of the very poorest people of the city were left in it, and they were there put to work as plowmen and vine dressers, people to take care of the, the wine grapes and plow the fields. And the chief priests, all the commanders of the army were executed. The last king of Judah, the last thing that he saw before they put out his eyes was the murder of all of his sons by the Babylonians. They put him in bronze chains and they drugged him off to Babylon where he died in prison. Spiritual adultery produced rampant immorality and idolatry, and it carried severe consequences. Amen? It, it doesn't get worse than this. But God was with them, even in their exile. That's the beautiful part of this story. That even while they were exiled, even while they were living in a foreign nation, they were still not forgotten about by the Lord. Even in exile, God was with them. His love for His people hadn't ended even if they had given Him hundreds of years' worth of reasons for Him to just say, I'm done. He never said that. In fact, let me draw your attention for another for a minute to another passage of Scripture. How many of you know the, the verse, Jeremiah 29, verse 11? How many of y'all? Maybe some of y'all have it on a poster on your bathroom or something, right? And it goes like this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, right? Good verse, right? You're like, hmm, I need to get a poster in my John. Um, but here's, here's the, what you may not know. That that verse occurs in a chapter about God's judgment. About how exile is coming and His people are not going to escape from it. In fact, they are going to be there so long, they're going to be there 70 years. It says you're going to be there so long that, look, I just want you to settle down in Babylon. Build a house there. Seek the welfare of the city of Babylon. Help your kids get married and raise families because you're going to be there a while. Plant gardens. Try to prosper as exiles in Babylon because I'm going to watch over you while you're there. That's Jeremiah 29.11. While you're in exile, I'll be with you. And I will make sure that you prosper as exiles. I'm going to punish you with exile, but I will also be there to help, and I will be there while you're in exile to bring you home one day. But in the meantime, 
seek the welfare of the city into which I send you as exiles. And Scripture gives us two different books that show us living examples of how God watched over His exiled people. Uh, you have them in the book of Esther and the book of Daniel. And each of these books tells us the story of God's care. Now, Daniel is about a nobleman, possibly a member of the, the Judean royal family. He's taken captive with three of his friends to Babylon. Uh, there were a lot of other people that went as exiles to Babylon with them. But Daniel and his three friends are the highlights of this story. And they become... Now, this is what happened. They become eunuchs in, ser in service to the Babylonian king. This is why they're put under the authority of the chief eunuch when they arrive, because they are eunuchs in service to the Babylonian king. So they lose their masculinity. They are given new names. They're given a new homeland. They're given, they lose their families but they remain faithful to God. These are guys who bear the name of God in their names. And yet they're given the names of Babylonian gods as new names. They have everything that is possible to take from someone and they still remain alive. And they say, but I am not a Babylonian and I'm not going to live as one. You probably remember, but Daniel and his three friends become rulers in Babylon because of their wisdom and Daniel's ability to interpret the king's dream without ever being told what the dream was. Daniel is able to tell both the dream and what it means. Daniel's three friends that refused to bow down before the king's idol and they escaped the fiery furnace that he had decreed for their punishment. It's Daniel himself who, who escapes from a later king's sentence of being fed to the lions at the king's zoo and records how Babylon was overthrown in one night. According to God's decree, the Medes and the Persians came in and in one night took over the world's most powerful empire. The story of Esther is a bit different. After Babylon fell to Persia, they allowed the exiles to return. And some of them did. Not very many, as we'll see next week. But they allowed some, the exiles to return as many as wanted to. Esther and her, uh, her uncle, Mordecai, should have gone back to Jerusalem. But they didn't. Probably because they weren't that devout, frankly. And that may be the reason that God's name appears zero times in the book of Esther. Is that he was not on their mind at all. But they were on God's mind. So when the Persian king is looking for new girls to add to his harem, Esther is taken into his harem as one of his harem girls. And nevertheless, Esther belongs to God's people and God is with her and he uses her relationship with the king to save the whole nation of Israel from destruction by Haman, the scheming prime minister of the king. What are we supposed to get from this story? That, first of all, with Daniel, God is with the uber-devout, right? 
the guys who were really righteous, the guys who followed God, though it cost me my life, right? And also with the king's harem girl, who's not particularly devout, who doesn't even mention the name of God. God watches over her and over his whole nation through her in that whole thing. Because God is with his people even in exile. Both of these are great and true stories and they show us how God loves us even when we are persecuted, even when we are living in troubled times, even when we're enslaved, even when we're stripped of our rights, even when we're under the dominion of a whole society that is bent on turning God's people into immoral idolaters just like everyone else in it. And God is with the super godly, but also with those of His people who are like Mordecai and Esther. People who find themselves in places they should not be, doing things they should not be doing, and even then, God is with them. Because there is people and he loves them. And that is good news, not only for the people of Israel, but good for us too. Amen? Because the last thing I want to show us today is that God is with us today as we live our lives as exiles here. I don't know if you know this, but you are not from here. You You may be thinking, Dude, I grew up in Chillicothe. I was born and raised at OS. You know, I was born at OSF. I was raised in this town. Everybody I know is here. I am from here. This is not home. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an exile here, according to the New Testament. This is not home. Uh, if you look at, I won't show you all of the passages, but from very early days in Jesus' ministry. Jesus warned His disciples that to follow Him would mean exile from the world and possibly even from your own family. He says things like, Blessed are you when other people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of things against you falsely on My account. Later on in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus warns His disciples that to be His disciple is to experience the same kinds of things that He experienced, including persecution, rejection, and death. He says things like, Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did, have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And a person's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's some strong stuff. Amen? In other words, to follow Jesus is to set every other relationship in your life as secondary to Him. And that necessarily means that there will be times, there will be contexts, there will be relationships in which you are a black sheep, an exile, that you are adrift and cast away from all kinds of other relationships. I've shared before, but I have a, a, a friend who's ethnically Jewish. She was raised in an Orthodox family, and she became a follower of Jesus. Do you know what her family did? They took every picture that she was in, put them in a casket, and held a funeral, and pronounced her dead. 
And she would tell you it's worth it. Though she loves her family, her mom, her dad, her brothers and sisters, she would tell you it's worth it. I would rather be exiled along with people of God than to go to hell without Jesus. And to choose Jesus is to choose exile. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20? Jesus sends us, His people, out into the world to make disciples, proclaiming the Gospel and saying that we are to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything Jesus taught, including to follow Jesus is to be an exile. The last line of the book of Matthew is essential. It says, Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Meaning that even though you're going to be an exile and a stranger, Jesus goes with you everywhere you go carrying out your disciple-making mission for all the nations of the world. And this shows up elsewhere too. Um, if you read the book of James, it starts out this way. Actually, I don't know why we translate this, uh, the, the name of the guy who wrote that book as James, because in Greek it reads, Jacob to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. You know, that is the Jewish term, by the way, the dispersion, the diaspora, is the Jewish term for the scattered people of the exile. In 1 Peter, Peter addresses his letter to, are you ready? The elect exiles, scattered people of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And then he explains the rest of the book explaining to these believers and to us today how to live your life as a Christian when you are not home. The Christian life is an away game. Amen? You are not home. And you won't be until you die or Jesus returns. And so Peter says things like this in his book. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. A bit later in, uh, in chapter 2, Peter writes in a similar way. And here he borrows, importantly, from the book I just talked about, from Hosea. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Remember, not mine. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy. Remember the kid? No mercy. But now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, our, of His visitation. There are echoes of Hosea here. Once we're not God's people, now we are. Once we didn't have His love and mercy, now we have it. But the loving act of God's grace redeemed us from slavery and exile and brought us into relationship with Him. But He has made us sojourners and exiles in this world. And as sojourners and exiles here, we're called to live in a way that points people to Jesus. Amen? And we don't know if that will be dramatic. We don't know if there will be lion's dens and fiery furnaces and having to come before the king and touch his scepter and that kind of thing. We don't know if it's going to be that you know, theatrical or not. We don't know if we're going to have to come before a pagan king unbidden at the risk of our life. I don't know. But here's what we do know. We know that Jesus is returning. And we know that He is with us during our time of exile. Just as surely as He was with Daniel, just as surely as He was with Esther and with Mordecai, Jesus is with us. And that we have a job to do in the meantime, which is making disciples who make disciples. And living out the gospel that we profess for God's glory and His honor and in loving response to His love for us at a time when we are still exiles a long way from home. So, I want to pray for us and ask for God to give us His strength and for endurance and for equipping to live a gloriously committed Christian life as exiles from the world, even as we still dwell in it. Amen? So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we know that we are strangers here. That we are not home yet. And therefore, many of the things that happen in the country in which we live and of which we are citizens will be deeply galling to our soul. And we will long for Jesus to return. And we'll be very aware on a daily basis of the fact that we're not home yet. Father, I pray that You would make us keenly aware of how far removed the life we live is from the one we're looking forward to. And that You would give us strength and endurance and equipping to live a life that proclaims the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a world in which we live as exiles. We know You're going to be with us. We also know it's going to be hard. And it is hard. And Father, help us not get confused about where home is. Help us not to live like people around us, but to live as examples of the life that Christ transforms and to offer an invitation to all who want a new life in the one of the world. Give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. Father, we give you praise 
We ask for your equipping by your Holy Spirit for your endurance until Jesus comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.